Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of YesOBS. Now, I've got a lot of good facts today, Paul, for you. Oh, no. I'm, I'm kind of worried, you know. Mine aren't that good today. I'm not that confident in them. I've got a blind overconfidence that eventually leads to people's downfalls. <laughs> that's that's the sort of confidence I've got today. Yeah. Because uh, I'm starting off with, like, word facts. Like, oh, right, okay. And who's made up the Oxford English Dictionary? Which is like right. Which is you've built a career on that. Yeah, this is a dangerous little territory for you to be straying into here. Yeah. It is. This is like me coming at you with like Japanese history or something. <laughs> it's like I could be treading on my toes. Exactly. I'm thinking if I can get away with this, and I can. Well, that's not to say this is a lie or anything. Mm. Oh, this could be true. Woo! Mm. Misdirection. Woo-hoo. I literally don't know what to expect. Uh, thing is, for this fact, I've pulled together graphs. I've got statistics. Oh my god! I've done research. I didn't just sit down in five minutes and cobble this together, you know. Which is what I usually do. (laughs) Yet you still win somehow. (laughs) So I think on that note, shall I just kind of launch into this? Okay, yeah, let's just go. We don't care about what facts you've got coming up later. No, you're just, I can tell you're just brimming with excitement about whatever this (laughs) is. I'm I'm almost on the edge of my seat. If only this was a visual medium, you could see how excited I'm I'm upright, I'm pert. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably just as well it is the visual medium. Right. The Oxford English Dictionary, Paul, mm-hmm. you know, they use a lot of different sources to say, right, when was the first time this word was used? Yes. Who's got the most uh, citations, that sort of thing? Yes. So you probably know the easy one. Who's number one on that list for most new words? New words? Yes. Um, is it Shakespeare? It is. And I'm suddenly feeling a lot more confidence. <laughs> well, is it Shakespeare? A lot of people think that it's Shakespeare, but there's lots of different ways that you can measure that. Because mm. in terms of like first attestations, it's Chaucer. Uh, but in terms of making up words, I think it's Shakespeare. Like he was the person who coined the most of them. Uh, I think I'm this getting is, very uh, nerdy already. I think yeah, this is the tell. graph that I might have oh, right, mo- okay. most coined, which yeah. is kind of where I'm going to lead later Like you on. can directly trace it back to him making the word up. Yes. Yeah. Apparently, somebody called Bible is at number two. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but... Um... John Bible. <laughs> yeah, John Bible. He was apparently great, quite a... Yeah, great writer. A prolific writer. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know who is at number one, two, three, four, number five on the list. Oh. Um... It's not a person. It's an anonymous text. Oh, is it Britannica? It's not. It's something called the Cursa Mundi. Oh, right. Okay. Which, uh, written around 1300, apparently. Yeah. Basically, it's supposed to be the history of the world as according to the Bible. Yeah. Uh, I only mention this one because it's got a, a link to our region. Yeah. But it was apparently written in Northumbria. Yes, it was. Uh, you see, look at this. Yeah. See, I'm glad I didn't use any of these oh, facts. Right, okay. I remember studying Cursa Mundi for a little bit at uni, so I thought if you're going to come out with a Cursa Mundi fact. I wouldn't be so bored. <laughs> wouldn't be so bored. I might have Paul. had you on the ropes there. <laughs> this is, why do you think I've got so many backup facts? It's in case you get the main one at the end. <laughs> right. But yeah, so the Cursa Mundi written in somewhere in the Northumberland, north of England, and it has about 10,000 citations in the Oxford English Dictionary. Oh, wow. It's, so it's a really interesting piece. Oh, so it's citations. Citations is just quotes that show how a word is used. Oh, maybe it's not citations. No, I think it's introductions. Like the first time it was recorded. Ah, right. So it's like first citations. Yes, right. first okay. citations. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, you can tell I'm not from a linguist background <laughs> here. <laughs> I just looked at this graph. So it's a, it's a list of 
the work in which a word was first recorded. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. That would make but sense. But it yeah. might the word might have been in usage before then. But this was when it was first recorded. Obviously, it would. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah then, if so. you're talking about it, yeah, this is people <clears throat> think that the dictionary is sort of infallible in that, and it isn't because mm. it's just the first time a word was written down. Mm. Like the phrase "Paul is a competent writer" was coined <laughs> by yourself this morning. But yeah. uh, that was it, there's no, been no certain, truth yeah, to this. Certainly, <laughs> no one's ever used that before. <laughs> but. I wanted to draw attention to some of the lesser-known citations mm-hmm. of the OED. Right. And do you know who is at number 69 on that list? <laughs> I wonder why you picked that number. Um, that is its pure coincidence, right, okay. by the way, that I picked that number. I know that a lot of very famous writers are quite low down on that <clears throat> list. Like, mm. I think Dickens is quite low down. Mm. But um, I don't know who's at 69, but... You call yourself a wordsmith. Ooh, <laughs> I I'm Mr. Haggard Hawks. I know all about the words. I, I don't know surprised. who number 69 on the most cited things is on the OAD. That's not information that is readily available in my brain, to put it that way. I wouldn't be surprised if it's someone famous, though, is it? Um, well, that's I deliberately picked it because he wasn't that famous. Oh, right, OK. Uh, feeling people need to get more attention. Yeah. And there's a guy called Sir Thomas Brown. Right. Ah, Looks like you've never heard no, of him. No, I haven't. And from some of the words he came up with, you'd think you would have heard of him. Right. He was born October 1605, died October 1682. He was basically an English polymath. Again, this makes me think people in the 1600s, how they didn't just have jobs and just, oh, I'm going to be a polymath. <laughs> I, I just, I'm just going to know things and research things and somehow I'm going to make a, li- a lifelong living out of it. It's kind of what I do. That is a good point. Yeah. Again, which is why I question how, how I don't know how you have money all the time, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I learned was how to rob a bank. <laughs> so here's a few of the words he recorded. Uh, gymnastic, hallucination, uh, insecurity. Prostate, he introduced, which this I think is... This is, is just one. like one of your PE lessons. <laughs> Hallucinate. Prostate. <laughs> um, ulterior, ultimate, veterinarian, precocious, ferocious, compensate. Overall, he has a total of 4,131 entries as first evidence. Credited him. Yeah, credited this guy. And you've okay. never heard of him. See, I, now I'm worried about this. Yeah, no, yeah. that name doesn't ring a bell at all. But yeah, he wrote a very famous work called the Religio Medici, mm-hmm. which was kind of religious, uh, medical, slash all sorts of weird encyclopedia, where mm-hmm. he kind of wrote a lot of stuff about religion and the existence of angels and witchcraft. Right. Basically, the fact is, is this person made up? Did I just pick a name of someone from the 1600s? <laughs> And then assign words to them. Right. Now, this is uh, this is frustrating because some of those words on your list, I'm like, no, they were older than that. Mm. Hallucination, precocious. Yes. Now, precocious, you see, that's a very old word because people used to use that of early ripening fruit. Mm. That's where it comes from before they used it of sort of children. Ooh. Really? Yeah. But see, this is the thing. The way, this is, the way the OED sort of worked out is it he might be the first person, because that is an old word. He might mm. just have been the first person to use it in the sense of, mm. you know, being very forward or being sort of developing early as a person. Mm. And that will be listed as a separate first citation to the actual first use of the word mm. in a kind of botanical sense. So I can't even kind of go, no, you've picked that word up and I know that word's older than that. Mm. <laughs> what were the other words on the list? Hallucination, uh, hallucination, yeah. prostate, prostate. Um... Now, <laughs> <laughs> the first record of the word prostate, as far as I know, the word prostate only has one meaning. 
<laughs> prostate, not prostrate. No, prostate is in... As in the gland. Is in the gland. What, the, he also coined, because a couple of others, follicle. Follicle. Uh, ferocious, see, no, fero- follicle. Ferocious was on there. Ferocious, I can imagine being coined quite late on, especially in that sort of very classically mm. educated era of like people kind of knew about Latin and Greek. So if you wanted a word, you had the sort of tools to make up your own word. People mm. don't tend really to do that anymore, apart from scientists. Mm. Um, but follicle, that's an old word. That's a, that's a Latin word. Do you know where that was recorded, though, first? No, I don't. Maybe he wrote it down first. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Latin version of it, it will be much older. So but he couldn't might that have been... be said for a lot of words that have their roots in Latin and Greek? Yeah, this They're is the obviously, thing. Yeah. So, these, if it was, it, so when he wrote them, they were new. It was the first time it was used in an English text. In an English text yeah. that he's coined in, a, in an <sighs> anglicised way. So you're right, a lot of these, like I said, gymnastic, gym, is it mm. really old? Doesn't it mean naked? Nakedness, yeah. yeah. Gymnasium means place to exercise naked. Mm. which is a, a rule not to be taken seriously. <laughs> so that's why I've got kicked out of the gym last week. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, gymnophobia is fear of being naked. Uh, like in public? Because I imagine that's, that's, probably, I'd, I'd presume, that's quite I rational, know. I'd imagine. <laughs> I mean, it's like if you're just at the train station yeah. and you're naked, I mean... Well, the opposite is gymnophilia, which is probably what you've got. Which is <laughs> love of being naked. <laughs> Somebody stop me. Um, okay, but what are, the other, what are the other ones on this list? Ooh, ferocious. Pro- ferocious. We've also got approximate in there. Approximate. Nice. Yeah, see, 1600s. Veterinarian. Um, okay. Prostate. Right. Did I mention prostate? <laughs> I, think, I think the prostate has had a good airing <laughs> on this episode. Right, okay. So the, it's basically, did this man exist and did, and, and did he? Was he the first to record these words? Right. In the 1600s. Oh, this is horrible because this is like, if I get this wrong, this is right in my... And I was so, and you had had a good start. <sighs> I've never heard of him. Some of those words are sort of question marks hanging over whether they would have been first used in the 1600s. But like I'm saying, they might have been used in other contexts first. So this is mm. the first time it was used in a new context. Yeah, so first usage of a word. <sighs> but then, like, if this isn't true, you've pulled together these words yourself, presumably, mm. and made up this guy's name. Did I Google Renaissance words? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then, like, why would you know about that? Okay. I'm the question you've got to ask yourself is how far would I go to try and catch you out? Quite far. <laughs> um, Before you answer, Paul, mm-hmm. if you get this wrong, you have to shut down Haggard Hawks. And <laughs> you, have to give me, you have to give me the password. Let me rename it to Tony Hawks. Tony Hawks. <laughs> Tony Hawks. <laughs> the skateboarder. <laughs> I think that handle might have already been taken. <laughs> right. Are you ready? Oh, and what was the thing called that you wrote? And what was it about? Uh, was it just like an encyclopedia? It was an encyclopedia mostly focused on religious truths and what he saw as religious truths of the day. So why is he mentioning a prostate in that? I don't know. It was also about, he did write a lot of scientific and medical stuff as well. Right. I don't know if that was in the Religio Medici. Right. It's Medici medicine. That well, the way you're saying it makes me think that it's from the Medici family. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, right, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take a punt on this. I'm gonna say that, oh, this is hard. Mm. I really want to say that it's true, but 
I think you might have made this up. Oh, you know what? This is really hard. You can't, you can't just keep dancing around know, this, yeah. Paul. It's because I can still see me getting this wrong. I'm going to say that uh, you've made this up. I'm going to say this is BS. This fact. Yeah. This man. It's all true. Ah! <laughs> he is apparently one of the most cited authors by the OED. Yeah, as first usage. What's his name? Uh, Sir Thomas Brown. Thomas Brown. Well, hey, there you are. No, I'd never heard of him. Mm. All of those words did sound sort of 1600s-ish. I was going to say, because when you started to interrogate it, I was like, oh, is, did, did I get some reliable sources on this? Is this, <laughs> is this actually true? Yeah, because I'm sure like a lot of those words will have been probably in use before then. But if they're going off just first citations. Because mm. I was say, just using the word precocious again. Yeah. Um, you said that. How old is that word? I'm guessing that's then? probably kind of early modern period kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a proper date in my head. But mm. I know that it did used to be a botanical term. Again, if anyone else has actually more accurate stuff. <laughs> I'm literally going to go home and look this, look this dude up. But um, no, like, yeah, this is the thing in the OED. You can kind of look for the first record of a word at all. Mm. Or, you, or you can look for first citation of a particular meaning. Either way, I'm claiming the victory there. Yeah, I know. I threw <laughs> a point away. I, like, it all sounded so... I just thought that you'd probably try and trip us it up. It does sound like, because I was jumping around the place. I did have a lot of backup facts. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You're going to have to hit me with a history one next time. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll give you the uh, logins for Haggard Hawks. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Finally. Got... You won't even give me the logins for Yes or BS? No, of course I won't. <laughs> Okay, right, I'm already on the back foot. Not happy about this at all. On the ropes. Yeah, and on a language fact as well. So, it's uh, with that in mind, I'm coming swinging back with history. Ooh. Yeah, so um, I'm going to talk about hyperinflation, mm-hmm. which, well, I, you know, I'm not like 100% a history person. I know you're the history buff. But hyperinflation, I find that like, really interesting. <laughs> I've written kind of articles about it a couple of times before. Um, so, yeah, some facts about German hyperinflation in particular. Mm, so, okay. It, you'll kind of know probably all about mm. this with being a bit of a history board. It all started at the tail end of the uh, First World War, yep. worsened in the 1920s. And the stats about this are like ridiculous. All I remember from my history days was reading history books where they had wheelbarrow fulls yeah. full of Deutschmarks. <laughs> like some of these facts and the figures are insane. So if if you'll indulge me, mm, okay, um, we're going to go through some of these facts before we kind of get on to my fact. Ooh. Um, so in 1922, there were 200 what was called Papiermarken, which was the banknote that was used in the, what would it be? It would have been a Weimar Republic at that point? Yeah, Weimar yeah. Republic. Um, that was the currency that was 200 of these to the dollar. By 1923, there was 4.2 trillion to the dollar. So this is like, this has just gone berserk. The inflation at one point peaked at three and a quarter million percent per month. In May 1923, there was 8.6 billion marks in circulation in all of the Republic. Mm. By November of the same year, there was 400 quintillion. (laughs) Like that was like the sort of value of every single banknote. It sounds a lot like uh, my ISA that I've got. <laughs> and odd because it was completely worthless as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of famous photos, as you mm. say, of like people carrying wheelbarrows full of them and mm. um, people wallpapering their homes with banknotes because mm. they were so worthless. Kids making kites out of them and all sorts of things. One egg in 1923 had the same <laughs> cash value, like in terms of figures. Of how many eggs do you reckon five years earlier could you have bought with the Ooh. same cash amount? 
if we're going on like quintillions, mm. uh, it's got to be in the millions of eggs. Yeah. 45 million eggs. 500 billion. <laughs> <laughs> like, Funnily it, enough, that's that's your new Jim Prodi <laughs> it's diet, isn't it? 500 billion <laughs> eggs a day. Yeah, that, that'll work these guns. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it got to it got to the point where restaurants were updating the costs on their menus every thirty minutes. Jeez. So there's a, there's a famous anecdote of a guy in Hamburg who went in and ordered two cups of coffee, and the price of the second cup of coffee had gone up from five thousand uh, dollars from five thousand marks to nine thousand marks by the time it had taken him to drink one cup of coffee. How how were they so up to date on the inflation? Yeah, how did yeah they, how I did... thought about this, but I'm guessing it was maybe sort of ticker taped. I don't know um, <laughs> because like, every cafe owner's got a ticker. <laughs> but just, the... just got to check the stocks. Well, and... <laughs> the banks and things would get the ticker tapes, and because they were literally churning money out. Mm. money would be getting delivered to these places kind of pretty much around the clock mm. the, the government commandeered printing presses it was needing to print out so much money um, it got to a point where uh, workers you would go to work, you would get paid first thing in the morning in cash and then you'd have 30 minutes to go and buy everything that you needed <laughs> then you would go to work because by the time mm. you got out of work you wouldn't have been able to buy it <laughs> for the wage that you'd been paid really? so it just it kind of went absolutely berserk mm. Um, so by late 1923, like this has gotten kind of completely out of hand. Like if you couldn't sort of settle a restaurant bill and you'd only been in a restaurant for half an hour because things had changed so much, uh, that they brought in a new currency, which was the Rentenmark, mm. which was part, part of the problem was that they'd suspended the gold standard. So it wasn't sort of valued against anything anymore. Um, so they they valued this new currency against the mortgage value of commercial land and agricultural land. Mm. So that sort of stabilized it a lot. And they worked it out that one of these new Rentenmarks was equal to one trillion of um, the Papier mark, so uh, <laughs> it kind of kind of helped to sort of knock a few zeros <laughs> off off people's bills and things. But it's the zeros that are the important part, okay? Because my fact here oh. that that is all completely oh, so that's true. That's all completely that's true. That's all completely oh, true. See, yeah. I was about to question. Like, I I wouldn't have thought they'd have that up to date information. Like, oh no, no, that's all. All of that is completely true. You could have had me there to be honest. Yeah, the <laughs> egg fact was enough. <laughs> Um, yeah, all of that's completely true. The fact is something called, well, something that became known as zero stroke or cypheritis. Have you heard of this before? No, it sounds deadly. Yeah, because what happened with sort of uh, bookkeepers and accountants and shopkeepers and cashiers and people like this at around this time was that suddenly the kind of calculations that a year ago they could just do in their heads and it was mm. really simple and you're dealing with sort of two, three, four, five figure sums were now like 12, 15, 18, 21 digit numbers. Mm. And it started to kind of scramble people's brains a little bit. If it was your job to do sums all day, every day, mm. suddenly you're dealing with billions and billions and billions on mm. top of billions. Then it kind of like started to undo people's kind of brains a little bit. Mm. And so there was a genuine medical condition that became known as zero stroke or this cypheritis. It was also known as delirium of the milliards. Now that sounds like an Emily Bronte novel or something. <laughs> It's the title of my debut album. <laughs> uh, a milliard is just a, a big number, basically. Mm. Yeah, and what would happen was people would start writing out a number and they'd literally get stuck in a loop and just keep cycling the zeros out. They'd kind of just spark off and just write zeros and zeros and zeros. And sufferers of this kind of delusion, you'd ask them how old they were and they would say 40 billion years old. Right. You'd ask them what this... their house number was and they'd say you know 50 billion how many children have you got or oh, 112 trillion oh well, that, uh, that that could be you know. <laughs> <laughs> that last one yeah <laughs> that's, that's perfectly normal yeah um so it was like 
because they were sort of under such strain and such stress to keep these things Mm. accurate and they were dealing with such insane sums that are kind of above and beyond what anyone can kind of mentally deal with they think that what ended ended up was it is a sort of form of like a temporary form of what's called dyscalculia which Mm. is where you're unable to deal with numbers anymore so numbers sort of lose lose all meaning Mm. they think it was a sort of nervous tension because if you were dealing with sums by the time Mm. you'd finished your calculation things might have changed and uh, yeah this was all sparked by hyperinflation is interesting Uh, My immediate gut reaction was to say that this is bollocks, Mm -hmm. just because I've not heard of this sort of thing in any other field where you have a very repetitive or difficult task. So I I found it odd that someone would be writing down dozens of zeros and just wouldn't stop. Yeah, they just get stuck in it. I'll just say, how many kids have you got? Oh, 17 trillion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's the thing. It's like they think that it was a sort of a temporary kind of madness where you just lost Mm. all sense of number because of the stresses and strains of dealing with all of this. It spills off still to me somehow. Like I know the, because we did Weimar Republic at A-level actually, Mm. I remember doing that. So we did a lot of, obviously that wouldn't be on the curriculum if it was, I'd imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think it's a sort of footnote to the whole process. It wasn't like, it wasn't the main focus to be honest at Weimar Germany. When when the whole Republic is collapsing and the finance is broken down, I don't think, I I don't think the 10 bookkeepers who (laughs) succumb to this. It would have been more interesting, maybe. <laughs> I don't think they were sort of front and centre of the most important part of history. So how many sufferers were they? Like you mentioned that, Yeah, that I don't know. It's it's mentioned in a few sort of psychological dictionaries and things, and mm. there's a big report in Time magazine from, from the time, ironically. Mm. But yeah, no one sort of mentions in any of these reports how many people actually succumb to it. But they do say mm. that it was most common among people who kind of had to deal with numbers on a daily basis, like I say, accountants and bookkeepers and... And people who work it in shops. Sounds like they were clutching at straws for a story there. Cause I, I, this doesn't sound like it would be that common. Like it just sounds like normal stress, to be honest. Like for mm. it to get its own name mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, there isn't sort of one understood name for it either. Like I say, it's called zero stroke or cipheritis. Cipher is an old name for for zero in that sense, not mm. not a code. Uh, and this uh, delirium of the milliards was uh, was coined by a, a German minister, but um, there isn't sort of one single name for it. I think you might be using your wordsmith ways, and you've um, just found <laughs> you've used the word. Oh, I'm going to use the word cipher in something. <laughs> And and March of the Milliards or whatever it was. <laughs> Delirium of the Milliards. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. I think I'm just going to go with my gut. This just feels off. And if it okay. is true, I think it, it was so minor, it shouldn't have been a thing or reported. I think people were just, <laughs> were just making it up, I think. Okay. That's my final answer. I'm going to say this is nonsense. You say it's BS? BS. Okay. You know, I got a language fact wrong. Yep. You've got a history fact wrong. Go! This is completely true. I'm not counting this as a history fact. This <laughs> yeah, is no. such a, a nothing footnote. Although an interesting one at that. Yeah, it's completely true. This, this apparently really? did affect people who, were, who it, within a sort of matter of months, had to go from dealing with sort of three-figure numbers to 21-figure numbers. It sort of scrambled their heads. It seems... Ridiculous. But then again, the human mind is mm. insane. Mm-hmm. Like, and this, crazier things yeah. have happened. And this is the thing that, as far as I can tell from reading this, it's not like they just sort of descended into madness and were <laughs> just... unsalvageable as people. I think it was just a temporary kind of. Well, you, you, you know, like when there's a. Th- I can't remember what this phenomenon is, but where you write out a simple word enough times, you start questioning whether it's still a word. Ah. It's that sort of. It's the same sort of phenomenon. I think right. if you sort of overuse. That makes more sense. Something nonsense. It becomes mm. nonsensical, yeah. Um, 
and if literally all day every day you're having to add up trillions and trillions <laughs> then it's going to kind of break you eventually what was the name the papier mark the papier mark was the original weimar republic's currency mm. and they replaced it with this renton mark thing which was valued against the land mm, interesting i'm kind of fascinated by hyperinflation <laughs> um, are you are you, <laughs> are you hoping to see some hyperinflation i don't know but like i can remember years and years ago finding out that zimbabwe had like the worst performing currency in the world or something oh yeah and no. i can re- remember reading the fact that if you had 11 pence to your name you were a millionaire in Zimbabwe and I remember yourself a Zimbabwe boy. yeah I remember thinking <laughs> right that's next on the list <laughs> yeah it's just interesting hyperinflation but yeah I just I'm fascinated by large currencies it's like where my last paycheck in Japan was for half a million yen wow. and it was in cash and I was, I was wow. like I felt like some sort of drug dealer <laughs> It felt like. <laughs> so that's why it was my last paycheck. Splitting was, was was the country after that. Came home, cast it in, and work of about forty-four pounds. <laughs> okay, so we're on one all. We've both lost a fact that should have yeah. been our specialty. We've not exactly showered ourselves in glory here. It's... Yeah, and I say especially. I'm more of a history amateur enthusiast than an expert. What's was... your master's degree in? Diplomacy, actually. Oh, is it? I thought it was history politics. No, that was my undergrad. Oh, so it's only your undergrad that's worthless. (laughs) (laughs) Your master's is in diplomacy. Wow. And you've ended up being a professional podcaster. Well, that's that's served you well. (laughs) Well, I suppose hanging out with you for decades has had to make us diplomatic. (laughs) And on that note, I'm kind of going to try and pull this back a bit with another history fact. We're going to start off with some word association, though, Paul. Oh, right. Okay. So when I say terracotta, you say... Army. Yay, that's the one. You got it. Oh, right. Okay. There you go. That's the end of that fact. I did think plant pot, but then I was like... (laughs) Plant pot. The terracotta terracotta plant pot. But then when you... Because you said history, I thought it had to be terracotta army. But we're not talking about the terracotta army. Oh, so... Because I'm... (laughs) Because if you let me get to my point... (laughs) Right. I'm trying to bring the association to a much lesser known civilization okay. that was evident in what is now modern day Nigeria. Oh, right. Okay. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's like the first fact. It's something I'm trying to bring forth to the light to let, pe- let more people know about. Right. Okay. And we know so little about this lost civilization that when their artifacts and their civilization was first discovered, they had to be named after the local village where the artifact was nearest to that they found. Oh, so we don't even know what they called themselves. Don't know what they called themselves. They had nothing written down, but they did have an abundance of terracotta models and terracotta figurines. So from what archaeologists have discovered, the civilization existed from about 500 BC to about 200 AD. Oh, wow. And the reason we know so little about them is because once the figurines had been found in the 1920s when they first found, the area has been so heavily looted since then, we know even less about this civilization. Right. But they had some really interesting sculptures. There's some in the Louvre, if you want to see them. They had very, it's a very unique type of sculpture, kind of elongated heads, Mm -hmm. elongated models of things. There's one sculpture where the Louvre claims it's a man resting his chin on his knees. But I tell you, it doesn't look like his knees. (laughs) If you, if you can... If you get a if you can get a look at this model, you'll you'll have questions. Something tells me you found out about the civilization via a Google image search. <laughs> and I'm bringing it to the light today. <laughs> what are the what are they actually called this civilization? Oh, sorry, uh, the vill- the nearest village. It's like it's a tin mining area in Nigeria. Um, right. It's the village was called Nok. So Nock. they've just called this civilization the Nok people. 
Right. N-O-K? Yeah, N-O-K. I was going to say, yeah, not like knock-knock. No, not like knock-knock. N-O-K, right, okay. And it's one of the earliest examples of a civilization in West Africa that's been found. Oh, right. It's part of Nigeria where they've got trouble in the north with Mm. uh, militants and unrest. So it's very difficult for an archaeological expedition to get out there and just Mm -hmm. like, right, we're going to map the entire area, find out what the extent of this culture was, Mm -hmm. whether if they had cities, where they were. But it's still being looted. It's still being looted because unrest in the area and people quite enjoy buying these sculptures. Right. Yeah, in fact, it's still quite a, a, a thriving black market economy. So there you go, Paul. There is my right, history okay. fact. So a the lost fight... civilization. So it's a civilization in northern Nigeria mm-hmm. that made terracotta figures mm-hmm. two and a half thousand years ago? About two and a half thousand years ago. Up until when? 80? 700 AD? Uh, no, 200 AD. 200 AD. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Now, um, this is my ignorance, but how old is the Chinese terracotta army? Ooh, older than that, I think. Have you not been to see it? No, my, that's one thing. I'm quite ignorant on a lot of Chinese history, actually. Yeah. So I could be completely making that up. But it's certainly of an age. Mm. Right, okay. And that's actually a good question. Like, um, how to make terracotta and where did it first come from? Because I, I always thought it was a, a Mediterranean thing. Mm. But obviously it isn't. It can't be. Because it's made from clay, I think, isn't it? Mm. Terracotta means baked earth. I think so. And I think this is evidence of the spread of terracotta. Right. That it's managed to get to cross the Sahara. Right. And get down to West Africa. Yeah, because if it's like, if it, well, I mean, presumably the Chinese came up with it independently. I wouldn't mm. have thought that they would. This is the first fact where we've got lots of interesting questions that I don't have any of the answers to. <laughs> well, <laughs> so yeah, I'm like... Just, I, like, I genuinely don't know how old the terracotta process is, mm. but I'm guessing if it's like, if the Phoenicians had it, then we're mm. talking kind of a few thousand years BC just in Europe, so... Mm. Um, That's another question. I don't know if the Nok people came up with this independently. Yeah. Or if the Chinese came up with it independently. Yeah. Or, so I couldn't tell you where the exact origin is. Yeah. But uh, if the question mark hanging over it is like, would terracotta have been being manufactured at around about this time? Then mm. yes, it obviously was. So, yes. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's plausible. And no one knows anything about who these people are, what happened to them. No, very little. Why they just ended, nobody knows. Right. Because no one's gone in there for a proper right. archaeological dig yet. So all we know is that we have some of their sort of items and artifacts. Evidence of their culture. They, the kind of leading theory is that most of these sculptures are religious in nature. Mm-hmm. Could be related to like a pantheon of gods they might have had. Wow. But again... I love stuff like this. That's the thing. It's, like, it's all kind of conjecture at the minute. Mm. It's like... Or it could just... be classic they could be fertility symbols or totally classic (laughs) classic fertility symbols that's the thing until archaeologists can actually get in there and i think i don't think there's a great push to fund expeditions to go and try and map Mm. map out the extent of these Mm. and to stop the looting as well yeah it's kind of a dangerous area to get to yeah wow okay but if because if they did go back and discover they had a written language and a pantheon of gods that would be because again that's yeah like you're saying this kind of stuff i love as well yeah there is a lot of kind of variable uh, cultures in africa but i could be Mm. this isn't a subject that i know anything about but it doesn't seem like we have that much knowledge about the real sort of history of a lot of these Mm. tribes just because they didn't have a lot of interaction with the West. Mm. And with, with most Europe. of the knowledge we have is when they came in contact with the yeah. Europeans and Europeans started to write things down. So that's those are the sort of records that we have. Yeah. The only older stuff is really ancient Egypt mm-hmm. and their records of, and their neighbours as yeah, well. With, Especially across the Sahara, which, yeah. is, which is why this culture is so interesting. It could be like a, yeah. a key, key to is, discovering a new 
That kind of makes me want to think that there's like a sort of Alan Quatermain character out there who's going <laughs> to go in and actually kind of do all the groundwork for this. Um, so or... that's the real question then. Did I completely make this up under the illusion of thinking, oh, that might grab him? See, now, or is it a real lost civilization? I really want it to be true. I really like this. And knock sounds like it certainly could be a sort of West African word, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to say that this... I can see me getting this wrong, especially <laughs> now I've looked at your face. But I'm going to say that this, I think this sounds true. I think that there's, there is a sort of undiscovered Lost African... West African civilization. Civilization that had terracotta figurines. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> now, you see, I've been to the Louvre. This is really <laughs> annoying. Um, I can't remember anything like they that. They are thousands of exhibits in the Louvre so yeah, you might not true. have remembered seeing these knock you know what got me about the Louvre I'm going off on a tangent here is that everyone queues up to see the Mona Lisa mm. and it's about the size of a stamp and it's behind about five inches of glass it's not even that impressive as yeah a and you it's can't like... stand anywhere near it they've sort of cordoned it off but the Venus de Milo is like in the middle of a corridor <laughs> like you, just... go, you walk past it <laughs> That, that's that's more impressive. I think it is. I th- and he's, I'm on a rant now as well. I mean, call me a philistine if you want, but I don't see massive difference in Mona Lisa and like other Renaissance portraits. I'm like, why is why is the Mona Lisa so? Oh, it's heralded as the, yeah. the perfect portrait. That's a good point because it's it's like it just looks like another. It's a portrait of a Renaissance woman. Exactly. She doesn't have eyebrows. <laughs> That's the most interesting somebody, thing you can say about somebody it. Somebody get onto the loop <laughs> and draw in some eyebrows. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I bet we look like total philistines. I, oh, bet, I bet people who are really interested in art are like gasping and falling on the floor. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, I think it's true. I think that this civilization existed and yeah, true. Final answer? Yeah. This fact is true. Yes. The well, bit that got me was the fact that they just it disappeared without a trace. Yeah. Like, there's no evidence of why they just stopped. That's so interesting. Which is what I'd love to find out. We should fund our own expedition, I think. Yeah, we should record a, uh, an episode from... Um, from the Knock Territories. From the Knock Territories. <laughs> Be a short episode, probably. <laughs> um, I'm going to come swinging back with something utterly ridiculous. Which is makes a change to every other episode. I'm going to tell you about the time that Anthony Eden, mm-hmm. former British Prime Minister, accidentally went on holiday with... I'm, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let you discover <laughs> in the middle of the story. Okay, so Anthony Eden, um, yeah. Churchill's replacement as Prime Minister. Um, <clears throat> kind of quite well known in his time, more mm. for kind of going against appeasement. So he kind of made, it, made an name for himself as being very kind of principled and then kind of threw it all the way with the Suez crisis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what so is, yeah. is what most well known for. Yes, unfortunately his um, reputation today isn't particularly great. Um, but in his time up until the Suez crisis, he kind of was sort of looked up to for, for being very sort of principled. Uh, he was only PM for two years. Hmm. I, I didn't realise, uh, 55 to 57, he stepped down and he retired from politics three years later in 1960, which was the year that he published the first of uh, three volumes of memoirs, mm-hmm. which turned out to be really, really lucrative. He published them in 60, 62 and 65. And they netted them in modern terms about three million pounds. Wow. Um, they were sponsored by the Times newspaper. They kind of set up a deal and said... Mm. Um, you know, give us sort of exclusive rights to publish these in the paper. Very, very lucrative deal. 
So after the third volume came out, the Times were like, we want a bit more of this, mm-hmm. Mr. Eden. Okay. So by this point, Eden was like, well, I've kind of written it all about my political life. So uh, he came up with the idea of writing about his... Some sort of comedy personal life. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was about his childhood, his sort ah. of pre-political life. Mm. So a grown up. He was born in County Durham, you know. Was he? Yeah. Oh, which so it's uh, about... didn't wear a bet? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, he was born in County Durham. And so it was all about r- writing about his childhood in the north of England and then about his military service. Mm. He served in, in the First World War. So this was in 1966. By this point, he wasn't particularly well as a man mm. and so uh, the Times set up another sort of quite lucrative deal and said look we'll pay you this we want your memoirs in about uh, your early memoirs in about eight months go away and write them he tried to start writing them and he came back and went I can't write in London I'm not very well the city's sort of too noisy and mm. oppressive you know we're going to have to push this date back so the Times went oh no you don't we're not having this I didn't know they were so brutal back in the day (laughs) we still need them on deadline so Mm. what we're going to do is basically send you on holiday Mm -hmm. so they arranged for him to spend two months on an island called San Xavier which is off the coast of Mallorca this already sounds like a ridiculous start (laughs) yeah but go on Uh, yeah this is a private resort you can actually still go there it's it's um a about three miles along this island mm. and there's only about 60 people live there today most of whom work in this resort there's mm. a, a resort of private villas um which are, were at the time owned by a friend of the editor of the times this is mm. why he was sent out there um but yeah now there are 10 villas on this island that you can go and stay in and it's like you need a lot of cash to mm. go and stay in this place at the time there was only four villas Oh, so it was only a smaller resort, but it's basically amazing. Mm-hmm. This island—it's all sort of private beaches and all this sort of stuff. Um, and you're not that far from the mainland. It is uh, about half a mile off the coast. There's a bridge that connects it now, but it oh, did nice. used to be just a little ferry. San Xavier, <clears throat> this place is called. San Xavier, yeah. Xavier. Yeah. So they were like, "Pack your bags, Eden. We're sending <laughs> you on holiday." Uh, so what they did was um, they booked through their sort of contacts at the times they booked the entire island out for eight weeks and the idea was that eden would go across there with his wife and his son was going to come and join him later one of his sons uh, in the end his wife didn't go um she was involved in charity work his wife was churchill's niece really yeah clarissa um so in the end <clears throat> she couldn't go because she was involved in sort of post-war fundraising <clears throat> efforts in the sort of mid-60s um and his son actually didn't end up going so he ended up going out there on his own for eight weeks is this is the big reveal this is, is the this big it? reveal so is this it? <clears throat> I t- I'm, I'm making this sound like i some can't kind of, wait to see who this is i'm making this sound like some kind of comedy story but <laughs> uh, it, it, when you read his memoirs it's not as, not as funny so he turns up there on this island with his sort of typewriter and all of his luggage and it's all been arranged for him that this whole island's his there's no one else going to be there to disturb him he can just go there rest and relaxation so he turns up and as he writes in his memoirs he turns up he's shown to his room he orders a drink off the person who shows him to his room mm-hmm. says serve it on the beach i'm going to go and freshen up i'll be out there so finishes up kind of gets changed this is i'm so ex- this is such a build-up <laughs> goes out <laughs> on the beach there's a deck chair there with a the drink sat next to it mm. goes down sits in his deck chair i'm kind of paraphrasing this story slightly <laughs> here now and he's like looking around going yeah this whole place is an absolute paradise completely deserted off in the distance at the other end of the beach there's a deck chair mm. with an old man sat in it having a drink mm. so he goes i thought i had the island to myself so he's just about to kick off when the old guy stands up and starts walking towards him Mm-hmm. old guy gets right up to him Eden goes I recognise this bloke do you know who it was? not Churchill was it? Pablo Picasso <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that 
Uh, Picasso, by this point, was well in his 80s, but he was incredibly rich, incredibly wealthy, very, very well known, still producing artwork. He died when he was 91 and he still produced artwork right until the end of his life. Yeah, it turns out that he owned one of these villas. So the Times thought they'd booked the whole island out, (laughs) but he owned the villa. Um, He lived in France towards the end of his life, but he owned this villa at the other end of the beach. So they thought they'd booked everything out. But nothing can stop old Picasso from going <laughs> to his private villa that he's that he owns on mm. this resort. Turns out that he's there for two weeks just to have a holiday on his own. Him and Eden end up having an absolute blast. We're just on the lash every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this ended up talking. Eden talks about it in his memoirs. He says that they had very little in common. Mm. Eden. That's good cool to say you wouldn't put them together. Really. Well, no. Eden was a conservative. Think politician, yeah. yeah. Um, served in the military. Um, Picasso was a communist, um, had constantly turned down military service. He took mm. French citizenship so he didn't have to fight in the Second World War. Mm. Uh, painted a very famous portrait of Stalin. So they had very little in common kind of politically, but they ended up striking up a bit of a short-term friendship over these two weeks, spent a lot of time in the bar on the island. Um, after 11 days, Picasso went home to Mougins in the south of France, which is where he lived. Did Anthony Eden get any writing done? <laughs> he did, <laughs> after Picasso left. Uh, started writing his memoirs. They were eventually published in the 70s. But for two weeks in the middle of the summer of 1967, uh, Anthony Eden accidentally went on holiday with Pablo Picasso. Right. I am a little on edge mm-hmm. because you told that story with such excitement and passion. Yeah. You've drawn me in before with facts like this. Like that one where the bloke who had a museum dedicated to himself. <laughs> that was such a lovely schmaltzy. You always get this. You, this is my weakness. Uh-huh. If it sounds like a fun, kooky, schmaltzy story, I always fall for it. And I just have to say, oh, that's like the Tony true. the Tiger. For like Tony the Tiger. Yeah. I fell for that one. I'm sure there's another one I fell for. Like so many schmaltzy facts. And this sounds like so lovely and such a comedy little holiday. Mm-hmm. I immediately want it to be true. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to have to go on your track record. I could regret saying this is a lie, though. I'm trying to think of some good interrogation questions that would catch you out on that lie. Because I don't know if Picasso did own a villa on this island. What year? Was this 1967? Uh, 67, yeah, summer of 67. What well, year did... late spring 67. What year did Picasso die? Like the 70s sometime? Uh, he died in 71, I mm. think. So this was his last hurrah with Anthony Eden. It's 73. He died. Picasso. Did they did they meet up after this? Eden went to his funeral. Mm. Yeah, and then he died himself in seventy seven. Right. Yeah. There's so, some little backup facts. Yeah, Picasso died. Was he was ninety one when he died? Because why else would Anthony Eden go to Picasso's funeral if he didn't have a connection with him? Oh, I'm all over the place on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, Picasso never went back to the island. He, he went back to. Um, he still owned the property and it was sold after he died mm. but he went back to his home in, in the south of France and he never went back out yeah. he was born in Malaga you know where, near where we were oh nice yeah. <laughs> another on the lash holiday <laughs> <laughs> right until you'd mentioned the funeral I was going to say this was BS but now you've mentioned but then again you could have just made that up like you could <laughs> you might have known I was going to interrogate that way and then come up with a backup fact Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm overthinking this. This is not a very cerebral podcast. <laughs> we don't really have, there's no twists and turns. It's. Mm. I'm going to say it's true because I want it to be true. Right. And that is my final answer. Okay. All that? Yes. It's BS. Oh! <laughs> you love your schmaltzy story. God, every time. Yeah. No. Every time. <laughs> that, oh. like, that island doesn't even exist. Really? I've made that up. You son of a... (laughs) 
As Eden didn't go to his funeral, they, as, as, as far as I can tell, they never met. Oh God, why am I such a fool? I just, I was like, I'll write about Picasso. What's a funny Picasso story? I don't know any. I'll make one up. Oh. I'm sorry. Next time, you're going to come up with a real schmaltzy story, and I'm not going to believe it. Well, that's what happened with Tony the Tiger. You didn't, you didn't oh. want to believe that. Oh. I'm sorry. That I would love that story to be true. You messed with but, my head. Yeah, like everything there was was wrong. He did write three <sighs> volumes of memoirs that were published in the Times. Like, did the Times ever send him somewhere to write them? No. Why would the Times do that anyway? <laughs> now that I think back on it, oh, here's an island that we've rented for you. Yeah. As if they would do that to anyone. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, he did make a lot of money off his memoirs. He did make the equivalent of about three million quid off his, oh. off those three volumes of memoirs. He did go on to publish a, a, a volume of memoirs about his early life, mm. but he didn't write it on a private island with Picasso. See, now that, you, sorry. Now that you say that, <laughs> this happens so many times on this podcast. It's like to the outside listener, they'd be like, why do you like the pigs driving cars? Was yeah, one. Yes. Yeah. Riding a donkey into battle was one. Yeah. Like, I was very proud of that one. But to the outside listener... Isaac Newton's cabbage. <laughs> was it nuts? Oh, someone else. Cabbage patches. Mm. All sorts of nonsense. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's 3-2, is it now? Uh, no, 3-1. 3-1. Yeah. Oh, you've got to pull it back here, Tori. Here we go. Last chance. So... Another a beautiful schmaltzy story you had there, Paul. Yeah. Um, I live on edge most days now. <laughs> just whenever we record these, I'm just, what, what schmaltz is he going to hit me with? <laughs> prematurely aging each other with stress. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to try and pull this one back. Right. And you might have noticed a theme in this podcast. It's kind of bringing to light lesser known yeah. Places okay. and people of history. Yeah. And that's how we're going to end today. Right. Okay. And we're going to end again on more word association. Oh, right. Okay. So when I say Crimean War, you say. Charge of the Light Brigade. That's uh, okay. That's one. I, I'll go, I'm on Florence Nightingale. I was looking oh, for Oh, right. Okay. But that's a legitimate answer. I, yeah. can't, I can't give you any jip okay. for, for that one. Right. So we're not actually talking directly about Florence Nightingale because we're talking about the lesser known people. Are, are you going to talk about her pet owl? <laughs> yes, that's ex- Did she have a pet owl? She had a pet owl that she really? kept in her pocket. <laughs> no, she did. It's completely true. No, she that's didn't. true. What was it called? I don't know. Lie the owl, full of lies. <laughs> Paul's Paul's made up owl, was it called? No, it's true. It's the only thing I know about Florence Nightingale. What, owl, what type a... of owl? Was it a barn owl? She shoved that in there, did she? <laughs> I'd imagine it was probably a little owl. But... I'm sorry. I'm, I mean, I'm cancelling my facts. She also invented pie charts. No, she did. She did. <laughs> You've completely derailed my facts already. I'm sorry, I've commandeered this. She right, had a pet owl as she invented pie charts. No, right. Okay. That's citation needed. She was named after Florence in Italy. Now, that was one of my kind of introductory All right, facts. Okay. I know I'll she, stop now. I'll stop. She, oh, no, I want to continue questioning these lies. Uh, yeah. Because she was born in Tuscany. Oh, no, I didn't know that. And oh, right. it's kind of like a relatively noble British family before mm-hmm. moving back. That was just one of my warm-up facts about oh, Florence Nightingale. I didn't know she was actually born in Italy, though. That's interesting. But you have infinitely better facts about Florence yeah, Nightingale. Owl. <laughs> owl. Imagine if that, I've like misread that and <laughs> like, it was actually a dog or something. <laughs> she kept a dog in her pocket. <laughs> well, how big was it? Was it a chihuahua? Well, it would have to be. It makes more sense to keep a bird in your pocket. <laughs> you brought it up. <laughs> 
and questioned the fact that she kept Eddie Annabelle. Supposed, this is supposed to be your round. <laughs> this is what you've done to me. I'm sorry. With right. schmaltz. You've okay. messed with my brain. I don't know where I am on this fact. Right, okay. So that's Florence Nightingale out of the way. Some facts about the Crimean War. And the casualties they had, as you know, most of the soldiers died, not in battle, but through the horribly unsanitary conditions they were kept in hospital. Yeah. So there were about 22,000 men who died. Wow. On, through British soldiers. And only 3,754 died in battle. The rest, wow. The rest died from diseases picked up from wounds in hospital, gangrene. One example, 85% of the soldiers who went into the hospital had scurvy which doesn't help you when you've got a bullet through your neck or whatever. Good grief. So that's obviously they noticed the very unsanitary conditions. Mm. And Florence Nightingale had a staff of 38 volunteer nurses. Right. One of which was called Christine Chapel. Right. And that is who we're going to discover today. Okay. The unsung heroes. Okay. Now, she helped pioneer a type of disinfectant. What the army would do at the time, they would use carbolic acid to clean uh, bayonets and weapons because it has a very distant, strong disinfectant. Yeah. So easy to wipe blood off, sprinkle a bit of acid on, whoosh, clean as a whistle. Right. So she know, she thought to herself, well, if it, it seems to be good at cleaning up blood. Yeah. Can we use this to disinfect wounds? Right. So just one day, she went, didn't ask anyone if she was going to do this because, again, Victorians, no health and safety, not mm-hmm. about. So she picks up this bottle of carbolic acid uh, there's a soldier, kind of with a gaping leg wound, mm. almost 90% certain this is going to turn gangrenous. He's either going to lose the leg or he's going to die from the infection. Okay. So she just started sprinkling the carbolic acid all over the wound. Now, what she didn't realise at the time was that carbolic acid actually causes third degree burns. I was going to say, was it not hugely <clears throat> caustic? It was incredibly caustic. Right. So this poor soldier, he was... Certainly going to lose the leg or die anyway. So he was like, you know what? Do what you want. Go for it. Right. And he suffered horrible burns around his leg, but it destroyed the gangrene that was starting to take root. Right. So they got him bandaged up in absolute agony. Yeah. Checked over the course of the next few days and they found that no traces of the gangrene coming back. He was kept well fed, separated from the other soldiers, mm-hmm. and he made a recovery, full recovery, and he kept his leg. Right. Uh, this was then taken back home. She started to use a more diluted version after that. That would make sense. Rather than just, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> neat I'm just, just going to pour neat acid onto your leg. Right, okay. Like I said, it was the Victorian times. They didn't really think about these things. Yeah. It, it was just done. Mm-hmm. And it became quite a common medical practice to use diluted carbolic acid to disinfect wounds back home in the UK. Right. It's still used in a lot of cleaning products today, actually. I was going to say, yeah, that's the, that's the only context that I've heard it in. I didn't know it had sort of... No, it was used as a disinfectant. Oh, they knew about the cleaning properties, obviously, because yeah. they were using it to clean weapons. But I didn't know it was used sort of and... medically. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. So that was her, Christine Chapel. So one of the more unsung heroes where Florence Nightingale gets all of the credit mm-hmm. and the others maybe lost to the wayside of history. Right, okay. This is interesting. I want this to be true, definitely. Mm. Because, if, frankly, women in history, I think, need as much celebrating as possible because mm. it's sort of a men's game. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as soon as you get a, an interesting character like that, it's well worth celebrating them. Which makes me think, if it's not true, <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> one less <laughs> on the female side of history. Christine Chapel. 
That does sound like you could have made that name up. That sounds like <laughs> someone like, like that could be like one of your mom's friends or something. <laughs> Christine Chapel. Yeah, just called my mom last week. Because you just list your friends, man. <laughs> I need I need some random names yeah. for a lie. I'm going to to cobble together. Christine Chapel. Yeah, in especially in war zones, mm. they're kind of going to clutch at any straw. And yeah, it that era does sound about right. Because I'm trying to think. Like I'm, I mean, my history knowledge isn't great, but I know that. They were still sort of using chloroform and ether and things mm. then, and so and we still use ether today just to get me through this podcast. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I wondered what that bottle was. Next to. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I'm. I can see you making this up, but I'm gonna say that yes, genuinely, you are celebrating someone that needs to be celebrated. I'm gonna say that this is true. Final answer. Yeah. Sorry, Paul, that one was a lie. Oh! Christine Chapel was the name of the nurse from Star Trek. <laughs> Are you joking? <laughs> the, I've, my new plan, I'm going to start sprinkling pop culture references into my facts to oh. see if I can get away with them. Well, you know my knowledge of pop culture extends to about the other side of this room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's where that ends. I'm sorry that one wasn't true, Paul. Oh. The carbolic acid was used as a disinfectant, but yeah. it was uh, Joseph Lister who started I was going to um, ask about Lister, because yeah. I was trying to factor in whether he was before or after Crimea. He was more... 1880s, he became very prevalent. I, very I thought he famous. was later 1870s, on. 80s, so he was later than... He was after the Crimea. Yeah. Because I thought it was him that did this. He was was, the first person to do it. He was definitely the first. See, I was going to ask about that. That's so (laughs) annoying. Because if you were, I had a backup fact to say that Lister took it from this nurse I was going to say. That's annoying. Now that you've mentioned Women in History, I feel I have to go and get some more Women in History facts. But you'll probably know they'll be true the next time. (laughs) So so you've completely ruined any part of the competitive edge of the game. That's so annoying. I threw a point away. So wasn't that 3-2? Yep, 3-2. Right, okay. And now that that strategy worked, I am going to pepper in more pop culture See, this is the thing. Like, you could be dropping in characters from... Like, I, I just don't watch TV, so you could be mentioning anyone. <laughs> Although, to be fair, original Star Trek is a bit old, so I wouldn't have oh, liked so, that. What, from like the 60s? Yeah, from the 60s. Oh, right, For me, okay. it's still pop culture, because I quite like Star Trek. But, <sighs> uh... I, I never watched that, I didn't know. <laughs> Christine Chapel. I was going to make a joke about her being called like a Christian Chapel. <laughs> like a church no. I didn't even think of that yeah but really? like I thought oh god I better not take the piss in case it's a real woman <laughs> oh. although to be fair I think you won the facts on that one the fact that Florence Nightingale kept an owl in her pocket and invented pie charts I'm sure I'm sure those are true people need to let us know whether that's true or not but I'm, I'm sure still claiming needed citation <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, a little asterisk next to that one so 3-2 under the final facts right Right, okay, so 3-2. Mm-hmm. So it's either going to be a draw or I'm going to take the win. So and I have no idea where we're sitting this season so far. No, so I don't know. I'm probably winning, I think. I probably <laughs> I turned out to be not very good at this game that I invented. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, um, so my last fact is about um, the magnificent nation of Tuvalu. Ooh, okay. southeast Pacific? Southwest Pacific, southeast. yeah. Um, kind of like... <clears throat> Yeah, north of New Zealand, kind of east of Papua New Guinea. Gotcha. So kind of halfway between like Hawaii and Australia, we're kind of down that corner, mm. like kind of where Fiji and Tonga mm. is all around there. Um, 
Yeah, you, I mean, you live in the past, so you probably know it better as uh, the Ellis Islands, which was a British protectorate. I don't actually. For a long time. I think I've only cool. ever known them yeah. as Tuvalu. Um, yeah, the Ellis Islands became independent from Britain in 1976, and probably because it was a British protectorate for a very long time, um, it was incredibly poor <laughs> by the time it became independent. I think we've kind of taken everything off it. So um, its economy was based on basically fishing. And um, like coconut byproducts like copra and, mm. and that sort of stuff. Yeah, not the best sort of mo- most robust economy in the world. Also, these are sort of very low lying coral atolls. So mm. the soil's not particularly good. There is nothing um, any higher than five meters on any of the islands. There's only eight islands that are inhabited. I take it you don't work for the tourist board of people <laughs> <laughs> with these. Well, maybe by the end of this fact. <laughs> these opening uh, facts. Yeah, this does have a happy end in this one. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, yeah, so really low lying, really isolated as well, miles away from anywhere. Yeah, relied a lot on overseas aid for for a long time. Not great agriculturally, like I say. So it's kind of, you know, it's doing its best, but mm. it's struggling to get its head above water kind of thing. Mm. Until no. the information age. Mm. So along comes Tim Berners-Lee, invents the internet. And <laughs> just, <laughs> just like that. And uh, not long after the internet sort of started to take hold, you know, you know, this thing called the interwebs, it did mm. quite well, mm. I think, in the sort of late 90s. Uh companies form called the internet assigned numbers authority mm. and it's basically the job of this sort of international company to basically it oversees like dot com and org and net and all that sort of stuff and it's also in charge <clears throat> of the country labels like dot uk that's interesting i might sorry just interrogate that just a bit because i'm interested like i'd never this never occurred to me who decided mm. who gets dot com yeah it's this i-a-n-e it's so this, where are they like an international organization i yes i i didn't do enough research on this ah. but yes i think it's sort of it's a sort of single body that oversees you know this country gets this this gets this dot coms gotcha. can be used by these sorts of businesses and so on and so on um so yeah this is the company that sort of owns or, or certainly kind of deals with mm. all of this sort of stuff and uh, tuvalu because of its name gets uh, the internet de- de- name dot tv <laughs> right Wait. so um this was in 1996 that these mm. country codes were all handed out so this is around about the time the internet's kind of really starting to become a thing uh, spice girls on the rampage yeah well you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so ju- so yeah the spice girls are going cock a hoop in britain <laughs> over in tuvalu they're like wow dot tv mm. you know when when people think of the letters tv no offense to tuvalu but they don't think of tuvalu they will now yeah so what starts to happen is that the government of tuvalu start to get approached by companies saying we've already got some websites mm. that are something 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 dot tv Mm. can we have this off you mm. so the government goes well you can have it off but at a price <laughs> <laughs> so um three companies eventually sort of start to try poaching mm. a deal from from the government of tuvalu to say look we want to take control of your domain purely by coincidence you've got an absolutely brilliant domain that lots mm. of people in the western world want to use and if we can get people to lease it through us we're going to make bank off this mm. So eventually, um, the government of Tuvalu strikes up a deal with um, a guy in Toronto who runs um, who runs a company now called Dot TV. Mm. I was going to say it rang a bell. Dot TV. Yeah, like, well, yeah, yeah, it's a big, big company mm. in in um, Canada. He w- went and sealed the deal by going on holiday to Tuvalu to meet sort of the ministers <laughs> That's there. That's got to be the best business meeting. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and in 1999, um, the government of Tuvalu signed a deal that was worth 50 million dollars mm. plus royalties 
paid out over the next 12 years. It's since been renewed, this mm. this agreement. Uh, and the country of Tuvalu owns 20% of the company .tv. Because just of this, because of the domain. Just because of this, this deal. So now anyone who has a, a website that's something something .tv, part of what you pay to own that goes to the government of Tuvalu mm. to the extent that now 10% of the entire Tuvaluan economy <laughs> is royalties from .tv. And so this massive deal that they signed in uh, 1999 transformed the country. I mean, its GDP mm. is, I think, even today, is only in the sort of mid-40 uh, $40 million. Mm. Like, it's a very, very small economy. Mm. Um, so to suddenly get this much money in was absolutely kind of mm. transformative. So all of the islands now have internet connection and electricity. Um, they put loads of money into infrastructure. There's a scholarship set up for mm. any native Tuvaluan uh, to go to school and to go to college. And in the year 2000, they used this money to finally fund their membership of the United Nations. So even though they'd been an independent country for 24 mm. years, apparently you have to stake, stake something like $100,000 to, to go through the membership what? process. of. That's ridiculous. Of you can't United just Nations. say you've got to pay to join. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's like it's the United Nations. It's, you don't have you to. Just, it's, yeah. you just, you're a country. You just join. <laughs> there, it's, it's not like a membership fee, but it's to start yeah, the process say, of being... What, what did they get for being a member? Did they get like <laughs> a, a, a free sweater and a hat? Well, it's because they have to go and travel to all these meetings and it's to kind of mm. stay up to kind of say, you know, consider our country as a member. We now do this. Mm. So it's kind of like to cover the admin basically is this membership fee mm. but if your economy is not very big a hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money and mm. so you've got to weigh it up against what you're going to get out of it and so on and so on um so eventually they got to join the united nations the prime minister tuvalu made his maiden speech in two in the 2000s and it was all because they just happened to be randomly assigned dot tv as their internet domain name now Again, you, you're hitting me with yeah, another story you told quite passionately. Mm -hmm. It's got a nice schmaltzy ring to it. These yeah. are the stories I like. Yeah. Again, I want this to be true. Yeah. But have you burned me again? <laughs> Is this... Would you do this to me twice in one episode? I would say yes, you would. And it would give... But the thing is, you've probably... This is probably true. But you've put the first schmaltzy one in thinking, oh, you'll, he'll... I'll throw him off. He'll mm -hmm. think the next one's a lie, but it's actually true. Right, okay. So I, I like how you're not interrogating the fact at all. Oh, no, no, like, no. This is just how much would I want to get one over on you? <laughs> one thing I've learned, it's nothing about interrogating the facts, Paul. Yeah, it's, not, it's, about... it's not do the dates match up. It's not how is the economy of Tuvalu. Oh, yeah, this that's... is like, how much is this guy going to burn me on this podcast? <laughs> so actually on that, how what's the population of it's only about 10,000 people. So oh, it's, it's, it's tiny. Small, small island, yeah. Mm. Island group, rather. It's eight, eight islands that mm. are inhabited. And became a member of the UN early 2000s. In 2000s, oh, yeah. yeah but it's independent in 1976. After the extortionate membership fee. <laughs> you know, the thing is as well, um, they've paid sort of in advance. And a lot of countries are kind of behind on their contributions to the UN, including mm. the United States. Mm. So that's kind of on... If you look at the UN's books... Tuvalu are like weird in terms of like <laughs> membership payments and the, the UN are kind of chasing America up for who, this who decides who pays what as well I that's I a question know. yeah I don't know like, it must be a sort of presumably based on your economy or something how much you contribute into the budget but mm. I, yeah I don't really know how it works to be honest I'd imagine Tuvalu wouldn't be paying the same rates as the, the, the US I'd yeah, imagine I that would, would be a bit thought, harsh yeah um, <laughs> probably not right 
Uh, I think I'm leaning towards true. If I just keep saying the schmaltzy ones are true, I'm bound to get one of them <laughs> right at some point. But oh, this does have a ring of truth to it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this rings a really vague bell of a memory somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, I think this might have happened. But I don't know where or when or what time, what, <laughs> what state I was in. Was I drug? Was it a dream? There's, there's just something at the back of my mind that says... I think I, this might be true. So you can't remember much about your holiday to Tuvalu. <laughs> <laughs> Drunk every day of the week. <laughs> I'm not really an alcoholic. <laughs> you said in the passport office. <laughs> I said in the holding cells on the way on the way to being deported. <laughs> right. This does have a lot of ring of truth to it. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit more on the company itself, mm-hmm. like this international company that decides. Yeah. So when like the internet's born, yeah. now we've got this is a website address. When when was that all married up? You know, I genuinely don't know that. Mm. Um, it was '96 that all these domains were sort of handed out but internationally. Bef- but before, before that, then, because I'm yeah. sure there was still because obviously there was websites before '96. Yeah. Because yeah. we all remember we got the you will dial up. Yeah, you couldn't go on the phone if you <laughs> only had one phone line. Uh, right. I wanted to say, go with gut. This is true. Okay. Final answer. Okay. The information age transformed the economy of Tuvalu. Yes. That story? Yes. Completely true. Ah. Yeah, what yes. a great story. Like I'm like, glad we I'm glad we ended on a, a good truth. Yeah, and it's like it really has completely transformed it. It's mm. now one of the best performing economies in the Pacific Ocean. I'd it's, imagine cuz having such a small population the money'll go a lot further. You can yeah. just build like yeah. a little mini utopia in the South Seas. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, 10,000 people, if you give them $50 million mm. and sort of say, you know, do what you want with it, like, yeah, mm. it's going to be transformative to a community. You know, small. doing this podcast, I've researched so many new places that I've just like, I've put, I've put on a list to go and visit. <laughs> Should we go to Tuvalu? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that one of the just an example? You had that fact about that place called Center. That was the center of... Center, North Dakota, center, yeah. Bang in the center of North America. Yeah. Fancy going there. But yeah, Tuvalu's on the list now. Yeah, yeah. If you know, if you should give it a go. So that's the end of episode yeah, 11. Episode 11. So uh, what we learned. Well, you've Ooh. learned about Tuvalu, the Tuvaluan economy. Yes, we uh, also learned about lost civilization of the Nok people. I, that's a in great fact, that. West Africa. That's something that I kind of, yeah. And I'm hoping we do get to learn more about them in the future. And people, please stop looting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I say I want to go back to the Louvre now and see and see this. I don't think they have many artifacts. They've got a few, but if right. you get on Google, you'll be able to find. Yeah. Them. Okay. Um, yeah. We also found out about um, German accountants going berserk in the which I still don't actually believe. <laughs> <laughs> Completely true. Yeah. Anthony Eden unfortunately didn't go on holiday with Picasso ah, by accident. Most fascinating for me, though, Florence Nightingale used to keep an owl in her pocket and invented pie charts, which is just such a... It's true. It's not. It can't be. <laughs> I'm going to use that fact in the next episode. <laughs> no, it's gonna be I'm true. just going to flatly... Yeah, no. <laughs> I'll sacrifice a point just to, on principle on that one. And we, I also beat you on a language fact, which for me... Yeah, Thomas Brown. I've never, never heard of him. That's a win... Me for me. I know. Yeah, I th- technically that should have been worth like two points. Exactly. Yeah. So look up the fella, see how many words. Uh, like Paul said, there's lots of different definitions of first citation, mm. first usage, which is I may not have explained very well. <laughs> considering. Oh, that's interesting, though. Uh, He's an interesting character. Yeah. So well done. 
a draw. Thank you. Let's hope we can break this deadlock. Yeah. And we'll see you next time for episode 12. <laughs>